Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's creative director. For this episode, I visited Sandals UK to speak with Kavya Gopal about the past, present, and future of biosimilars. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other instalments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The podcast is also available on iTunes, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. Today, I'm here at the UK headquarters of Sandoz uh, to speak to the company's um, Kavya Gopal about the current state of play in biosimilars. Kavya, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I wonder if we could start perhaps by uh, letting yourself introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Dominic. So, I'm Kavya Gopal. I am the head of the specialty business for Sandoz UK and also chair for the British Biosimilars Association. Um, I've been in post for about a year now, but um, have been actually with the organization for some 14 years and uh, quite some time in the biosimilar space as well, mainly on the commercial side. Okay, so uh, it's, biosimilars are a hugely exciting topic, I think, for a number of people in the industry. For anyone that's maybe coming to this topic new, um, how, would, how would you define a biosimilar, just to set the scene? Sure, so first I think we need to understand what a biologic medicine is. So most people are familiar in some way with biologic medicines because they tend to be injectable products and um, they are, they're usually monoclonal antibodies, et cetera. They're very complex agents. So once you know what a biologic medicine is, then you can easily understand what a biosimilar is. A biosimilar is essentially a, a version of the biologic medicine with the same efficacy and safety um, that is demonstrated in clinical studies as a biological medicine. However, it is not the exact same product as a biological medicine. It is highly similar. That is how regulatory bodies describe it. But essentially, when it is given to a patient, it achieves the same benefit to the patient in terms of efficacy and safety. You mentioned you've, you've been in, in your current role for, for just over a year now. Um, but in, in terms of biosimilars, when, when did they come onto your, your, your radar? And well, how, how have you seen the market develop? So biosimilars in Europe have been around for many years. So the first biosimilar that was approved and launched was actually a Sandoz product uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, it was Omnitrope. It's a somatropin biosimilar. It's for growth hormone deficiency. So they've been around for quite some time, and Europe has been quite advanced in terms of its approval processes, etc., in biosimilars, and has a lot of experience to date with biosimilars. We've had three biosimilars um, over the last... 10 years or so, and then last, over the last two to three years, we've had actually more complex biologic medicines um, have gotten off, gone off patent, and we've had biosimilars come out for those. So the last three years have actually seen the most change, mm-hmm. and the next two to three years we'll see even more dramatic change in the biosimilar space. Europe is definitely far ahead of the curve on biosimilars compared to the U.S., where we have much fewer number of biosimilars approved. I believe it's 12 approved in the U.S. versus 44 in Europe so far. Um, so the evolution was slow in the early stages, partly because of the number of products that could be commercialized based on patents and so on. But in the last three years, as I mentioned, we've had major products that are highly used by the NHS and by patients come to market as biosimilars. Mm-hmm. And so as this uh, rate of evolution within biosimilars um, picks up and things, uh, 
we all expect it to continue to, to accelerate going, going forwards. Um, what have been the key learnings uh, that sound us about uh, biosimilars, perhaps from a, a policy perspective? Sure. So the beauty of um, the UK market is that they are, as I mentioned, quite ahead of the curve in terms of biosimilar acceptance. So early stages, we had assumed as an organization, and also I think as a um, as other companies with biosimilars assumed, that there would be some clinical resistance to biosimilars um, with the understanding that clinicians who are prescribing these products would be wary because of indications, because they weren't as familiar with the product, and so on. What we've found, however, is that clinical acceptance has been quite high. In the spaces that we've had biosimilars come to market, which has been in gastroenterology, in rheumatology, and in oncology, it has been very quick over the last three years, but you can definitely see the change for the, from the first biosimilar to the latest biosimilar and how quick the uptake has been. So that acceptance has been growing over time. The comfort level of clinicians has been growing over time and with patients as well. Overall, the NHS accepts biosimilars and sees them as a valuable tool in terms of helping manage budget and increasing access for patients. And that has translated into policies that have made use of biosimilars very clear that it is safe and effective to use them, it is the right thing to do to use them, we've had good procurement environments for them, and all of that translates to clinicians are seem to be totally okay with using the biosimilars that we have out there right now. And what we've seen so far is that the efficacy and safety is what we've expected them to be. In terms of um, potential clinician resistance to, to, to biosimilars, what do you think it was that, that um, changed that? Is it very much top-down, or is it more, um, more in terms of a, an educational piece? How has how, that been influenced, do you think? I think it's been a mix of things. So, first and foremost, um, organizations like Sandoz, and Sandoz actually has done quite a lot of work to educate clinicians around biosimilars. That was a lot of what we've spent the last two to three years on in terms of making sure people understand the concept of biosimilars first and foremost, regardless of indication, and then try to get buy-in on, on some of the other things that come along with biosimilars, which includes extrapolation and switching and so on. So we as Sandoz actually have been very committed to the medical education aspect of biosimilars, first of all, and that has definitely helped the market. Um, so that's one piece, and other organizations have, I'm sure, have done similar things. The second piece from a policy standpoint is NHS has made it very attractive to utilize biosimilars. They have implemented things like the sequin, uh, where it offers an incentive to use biosimilars. CCGs have put in gain share agreements where they incentivize the use of biosimilars, where the hospital, the trust, gets something back for that switch to a more cost-effective medication. Same efficacy and safety, but a more cost-effective for the system overall. So it's two parts. So part of it is policy, driven by the NHS and other bodies. We even have a biosimilar commissioning framework that actually sets out what the goal of um, NHS is in terms of achieving uptake of biosimilars and what period of time. So policy is one piece, and definitely education is the other piece of it. And that's from, from policy. If we look at maybe uh, regulatory approaches to biosimilars, so Certainly, it's been fascinating as a journalist and writer to, to watch the evolution of the regulatory framework. You mentioned um, unusually, perhaps, that the U.S. has lagged quite a bit behind um, Europe. Um, 
probably to the frustration of, of many working with, within this space, I, I, I imagine. Uh, but it certainly provides a um, fascinating story, at, at, at least for, uh, for the media looking at, uh, as we covered the, and have covered the evolution of, of biosimilars. But from a regulatory standpoint, were there particular pressure points that, um, in, uh, in the past since we've um, got to where we are now, do you think? So I don't think the regulatory environment has changed dramatically in terms of the requirements from EMA for what a biosimilar needs to prove. I think there is still evolution coming in that space. Uh, to date, we have re- EMA has required a, a study to show pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic equivalence, which is a given for almost any medication, and then also a what I'll call a quote-unquote phase three trial or confirmatory trial to show efficacy in actual patients with the disease. So that hasn't really changed. I think two to three years from now, that might evolve because the comfort level with having just PKPD data might increase. But that's to be seen. We have yet to see an approval of a product without both of those components. So that fundamentally has not changed in Europe. I think the thinking around extrapolation, around which indications you need to do the study in, et cetera, has changed because people are more willing to accept um, data once they understand again concept of biosimilarity that just because you do it in one indication if you understand biosimilarity then you can extrapolate that to other indications you don't have to do a study in every single indication that the drug is approved for now the current environment in Europe also doesn't have a major issue with um, what we'll call quote-unquote interchangeability which is a very hotly contested term because the definition is quite different in Europe than it is in um, in the U.S. environment. Interchangeability fundamentally just means that you can switch from the originator product or the reference medicine product to the biosimilar product. Um, and theoretically, you should be able to switch between biosimilars as well. However, there are in, there's enough clinical evidence of, orig- of reference medicine to biosimilar switching that is in place. And actually, we, Sandoz products actually have some studies that show that switching back and forth between reference and biosimilars that should give people comfort that you can actually switch. You don't have to just do new patients on drugs. You can actually take a patient who is currently on the reference medicine, switch them to a biosimilar and not have any issues. Mm-hmm. The interchangeability definition has implications for what it means for substitution and so on. But here in the UK, you have to prescribe by brand name. So substitution is almost a non-issue here. In the US, um, when you use interchangeability, they think about substitution, pharmacy substitution, but that's not a topic in the UK because you're not allowed to do that anyway because of having to prescribe by brand name per MHRA guidance. And uh, you mentioned that there are... um uh, there have been uh, studies conducted on um, originator product mm-hmm. products to biosimilars. Uh, have there been, to date, uh, studies on moving from one biosimilar to another? Uh, and do you think we might see more of those? Uh, sure. uh, I think that is the open question right now, and when will we see it? It's not a question of if, it's a question of when exactly will that come. Some of that depends on the opportunity of um, of the market dynamics. So. Biosimilar to biosimilar switching is not something that's regulatory required, so it's really something from a real-world evidence standpoint that will have to come through the market experience. We will see it from registries, we will see it in certain countries where the likelihood of um, of switching from one biosimilar to another biosimilar wholesale is much higher. So you take an example like the Nordics. Um, Nordics is a tender environment where they allocate one product 
one product wins all in terms of the tender. So if, for example, you have a product that won the tender this year, but then you have a product, a different version of the product, a different biosimilar of the same molecule win next year, technically they could show evidence that says that, well, switching from one biosimilar to the other, hopefully, I'm assuming, would show no difference. But that evidence is still to come. We have not seen that um, available yet. It is not coming from companies specifically because we follow what we need to do from a regulatory standpoint, but it will come from real-world evidence, like I said, from the registries and from um, other markets where that tender dynamic, et cetera, makes that switching and monitoring much simpler to manage than in a market like the UK. Mm-hmm. But it will come. I expect, honestly, to start seeing some evidence or something about it over the, by the end of this year, early part of next year, with at least one of the biosimilars just because that's what I'm hearing in the marketplace now. So, perhaps from, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, uh, are there any more questions, do you think, that, that regulators have about biosimilars? But equally, is there anything that you'd like to see regulators do within the, more of within the space? So, I think there's, from a regulatory standpoint, even though it's not exactly a biosimilar they've been dealing with, they've been dealing with different variations of biological medicines for a long time. Even the reference medicines have had variations over time. What, what some people don't, may not understand is that because of the nature of a biologic medicine, every single small change to your manufacturing process, et cetera, technically creates a biosimilar, technically, of the reference medicine. So regulatory bodies and patients and clinicians have been experiencing biosimilars for quite some time. So I don't think there's a lot of questions left just because you have individual companies, different companies coming out with biosimilars. I think what is what is really left to understand or to decide is, do you need the same body of evidence in the future to get approval for biosimilar that you do today? Mm-hmm. It's an open question. It depends on what EMA decides to do. Um, what is the ultimate market going to look like in terms of use by indication? So what we've seen in the UK is certain Specialties have adopted biosimilars much more easily and much faster than other specialties. So how long will it take for those to move and why haven't they moved? So these are just open questions that need to be addressed. There's not much, there's not a whole lot more left beyond that because we're going to continue to see biosimilars in other indications. But I mean, we've seen biosimilars in oncology and in rheumatology, very complex indications. So I'm not sure what, once you see the efficacy and safety that they make sense and that they work, not sure what else is going to be left to answer in terms of, yes, you should be using them. So in, in terms of uh, the regulatory approaches, of course, we've been speaking a lot about so far about the um, EMA and just taking you know, a regional European uh, process. There's a lot of change coming, uh, certainly uh, for us here in, sitting in, in the UK come uh, March uh, 2019, or at least we expect there's a lot of change. Um, you almost always have to uh, preface any question uh, that even touches on, on the subject of Brexit with we don't quite know what's going to happen next and we're not sure at the moment, we're not sure anyone quite knows what happened, what's going to happen next. That says, <laughs> what's going to happen next <laughs> in terms of, uh, of biosimilars, do you think? My crystal ball says no. Um, so with, with Brexit, uh, the challenges or, and some of the concerns that are there is Today, under with the UK being under EMA, the UK gets access pretty much first 
to buy its own medicine in the sense that we're able to launch in the UK first because of the pricing and reimbursement setup that we have in the UK. So the advantage is that UK patients, UK clinicians have access to a lot of these biosimilars before a lot of other markets do that have to wait on pricing and reimbursement. So when we're not under EMA anymore, well, what, are we, what do we wait for in order to get approval in, in, for the UK market? That's still an, op- that's an open question. Uh, how MHRA chooses to align itself, are they going to align themselves with EMA or FDA guidelines or something else altogether is also a concern because right now we're working under EMA guidance. If MHRA decides to do something different, then does that mean that we have to do studies specific to MHRA, which means that from a cost and investment standpoint, companies potentially could think twice about, what do I want to do for the UK market if I have to do something completely different for such a small market relative to the all of Europe, right? Mm-hmm. I can cover all of Europe with EMA with one, one set of studies, but now I have to do something completely different for just the UK market. Is that something I want to invest in from a long-term standpoint? And that should be a concern for all of us for not just biosimilars, but any pharmaceutical medicine coming out on the, over the next couple of years. And the last piece is from an availability and access standpoint of drugs coming into the country. A lot of products, not all products, but a lot of companies and products have release sites um, in terms of quality release and so on outside of the UK. What are the regulations going to be in terms of quality release and so on and getting drug actually into the UK market? Are we going to face delays in terms of customs, in terms of different requirements from a quality standpoint? Are we going to have to require quality release in the UK? These are just very tiny, this might seem like tiny logistical issues, but they have massive implications on timing and resources that are necessary to make something available for the UK. So we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. But until we know, these are things we're worrying about right now. Mm. I know, there's certainly no end of questions, I think, exactly. when you delve into to any uh, specific um, uh, aspect of, of the pharmaceutical industry. So watch the, as, as a watch the space, exactly. watch the space yeah. now and, and see how it comes out. Do you, uh, there's also a lot of concern around what it might mean for um, the timing of product launches mm-hmm. um, within the UK compared to the rest of, the, of, of Europe. At Sandoz, do you have any, any sense on how you would view the UK post-Brexit um, within, in terms of a new biosimilars launches? Sure. As I mentioned before, if the timing, right now we have the advantage in the UK, but if different work is required that we can't parallel path in some way, I think the, the timing is going to be impacted. So that, But I think that's something we could manage through. I think the bigger question is the UK as a market for us to invest in over time and how is that going to change for any pharmaceutical company overall. The UK is a hub for for innovation, it's a hub for clinical research, so there's a lot of things that happen in the UK where we have great thought leaders and so on that we want to have access to our medicines because they understand the space, they understand therapeutic areas and they have an influence um, on the broader community. And honestly, the UK, from an NHS standpoint, they do some really good work from a policy standpoint that other countries can learn from. So the UK, I think, will always be an example country, a very positive example country, especially for biosimilars. However, if it comes to the point where we have to do something very different for MHRA and for the UK market, I think any company would look at it and say, okay, well, what is it worth for me to invest and do that something different for my medicine 
just to get launched in the UK compared to other countries in Europe and so on. Um, part of the Brexit discussion um, is, is about the investment, but linked to that is also how the UK chooses to deal with its procurement, how NHS chooses to deal with its procurement strategy. And how do we make the market sustainable for the long term mm -hmm. in the face of Brexit, in the face of cost pressures and all of those things. So with or without Brexit, Brexit procurement strategy is an issue mm -hmm. that we have to think about because for a biosimilar medicine, think about where we have multiple players coming in. Now, we want to have continuity of supply. We want to have something that's sustainable so patients continue to have access to those biosimilars. But we're going to wait and see what happens because with everybody similar that's coming, NHS is looking at and rethinking what they need to do and might be doing things differently product by product. Um, we've obviously shared feedback suggesting that what our opinions are <laughs> in terms of achieving sustainability in the market, but all of it is about competition. I mean, think about why the NHS is getting the savings from biosimilars. It's because biosimilars are giving competition to the reference medicine, to the origin originator biological medicines. So we want to make sure we keep that competition going at a level, though, that makes it worthwhile to continue to invest in the UK market for any company. Mm -hmm. So and, and picking up on, on that point, then, in, in terms of competition and, and pricing, uh, I imagine you, um, when you look at um, biosimilars, it would, it would appear to be that the, one of the main points of differentiation it, um, compared to the reference product certainly is, is the prices, the saving and, and the, the cost saving that they're able to um, allow uh, health, different healthcare systems to, to make potentially to then um, free up resources to go into other new new innovative medicines and other parts of the, um, uh, the healthcare in, environment. But when you look at maybe um, one biosimilar compared, compared to another, how are they do you think how how can they differentiate one from another? Is it just down to price and or other 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 aspects? No, the marketing person in me is very much against that comment. <laughs> no, 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 no. The reality of biosimilars is that fundamentally they are the they are similar in terms of efficacy and safety, but delivery mechanisms come into play. Other data that might be available do come into play in terms of how to quote unquote differentiate one company's product from another company's product. If you have a standard IV product, for example, um, and um, that needs to be infused, it could be what strengths does it come to you know, come to market? What strengths are available to use? Uh, what kind of stability data does it have when it comes to market that could make a difference if it needs to be compounded? Those are small different ways where one product might be slightly different. Again, not in terms of efficacy and safety, but in terms of utility for the hospital. That utility for the customer overall. Where it's not about price, it's about, again, what makes the most sense for that hospital. Now, that's one piece of it. The other piece is many of our biosimilars also subcutaneous administered products, meaning self-injected products where a patient injects themselves at home on a weekly or bi-weekly basis potentially um, for that medication. So in rheumatology, especially so somebody with rheumatoid arthritis might be getting this self-injected product. Those products have actually much more complexity than just a hospital administered product. And there are different little ways where customers need to consider and look at to determine which product to choose because it's not just they're the exact same. Yes, the molecule theoretically is. However, the device that they come in can be very different. They might need to look at that to see how their patient's 
might prefer one versus the other. But, you know, if you think about the size of the device, things like that, those things do make a difference for patients individually. It could be about the home care service offering. So many of our subcutaneous administered products in the UK are delivered by a home care, meaning the patient gets the drug delivered to their house so they don't go to a local community pharmacy to pick it up. That is a service that is provided by, for the most part, by the pharmaceutical companies that, that provide the products themselves. Now, those options on home care can vary. So it's home care delivery, it's also nurse training. So there's small differences that a hospital might look at or a clinician or a chief pharmacist might look at to say, well, these products are essentially the same, but there are small differences where it has nothing, again, to do with price. It's about the product that the company is making available, the, the SKUs, the devices, some of the service offerings that do come into play in the decision. Yes, price is a big factor because you want to get the most savings that you can, obviously. It's, so you want to pick a cost-effective choice. But let's be honest, all of them are going to be cost-effective on some level, depending on your baseline that you're looking at. If your baseline is a reference medicine, any biosimilar is going to be cost-effective compared to the reference medicine. But how you make that choice is going to depend on what, da- what data, not clinical data necessarily, but what data about the product, like I said, stability data, method of administration, the device, and so on, those do end up making a difference to customers because ultimately they don't want to have more work on their plate than they have to when making that change from an originator or reference medicine to a biosimilar. Mm-hmm. And m- moving on to uh, market access, so market access falls within your, your current mm-hmm. um, remit, of course, and we know uh, certainly when, we, when you come to... Um, uh, Adalimumab uh, biosimilars, I'm particularly glad I can say, <laughs> say the, the generic name there, I don't get quite enough uh, practice on those. Uh, when th- those biosimilars come through uh, oh, October the 16th, I think, if my memory serves right, that um, the uh, NHS commercial uh, unit, the, the new, new body, will be looking at that and, and more of a, taking more of a procurement, it seems, standpoint to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell me a bit about market access within biosimilars, how, perhaps how it changes from traditional market access routes, and, and also how it's looking, how it's evolving at the moment. Sure. So, for biosimilars, the majority of the UK operates under um, framework tenders. So, what that means is that we contract with the NHS to be on a set of products that are being offered at certain price points. So, technically, a hospital can pick and choose any, pro- any product that's on that tender, on that framework tender. That's quite different from what, I, what the quote-unquote generics world looks like, where you get one choice of product. Hospitals, for example, for typical hospital products like antibiotics and so on, tend to have sort of winner-takes-all tenders, where one product, one company gets the award, and that's the only one that you have the choice of. Pretty much all biosimilars are on a framework, so clinicians have a choice. Now, that choice, as I was mentioning before, can be driven by many things. It doesn't just have to be about price. And that's why the framework actually makes sense, because there might be different little things that make a difference um, to a clinician or to a hospital. And that's really all the market access is, because the beauty of the NHS is that patients don't have to pay for anything. The clinicians, once they make the choice, they just have to prescribe, and they can get they can access it from wholesalers, from home care companies, and so on. Market access, though, for biosimilars is also about all the policy stuff in the background. 
that the NHS is driving. NH, well, NHS England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, everybody has a slightly different take on how they view biosimilars. But fundamentally, they all have sort of commissioning ideas about biosimilars and where they think biosimilars should be in terms of adoption. So the market access overall is driven by a need to accelerate biosimilar adoption. I mean, if you look at NHS England, we have um, medicines optimization dashboard, so which actually looks at biosimilar uptake at a trust level for each biosimilar to see where they're at. It's actually really interesting because you can look across the board and see where in the country you have the fastest biosimilar uptake for, you know, for the different biosimilars that are out there. Mm -hmm. And you start to look at it where the average across the country for, um, for products is somewhere in the 70 to 80% range. And then you start looking at trusts that are above and below that, and you start wondering, well, why are they above and below that? The environment's the same, mm -hmm. so why would they be above and below? And that's actually a tool for the NHS. Again, it is, I look at it as falling under market access, the tool for the NHS to look at it and say, well, why am I not optimizing, as the dashboard says, why am I not optimizing biosimilar use where I've got a little bit, but why don't I have more? What is, what is going on behind that as well? It's still about giving choice to the clinician, which is why we have the frameworks, but the optimization dashboard is looking at overall biosimilar uptakes. Regardless of which biosimilar you're using on the framework, if you have a low biosimilar uptake, what, I would question why is that the case? Why have you made that choice and why aren't you getting, why aren't you choosing to make the most of the cost-effective choice? I'm certainly uh, not least by putting the, the um, medicines optimization dashboard in place, but and through uh, other other um, initiatives, the direction of travel from the NHS would be would be clear in terms of what they're looking to, to see uh, from uh, biosimilar uptake, and yet we still see that there's quite substantial um, local variations. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Uh, is there much? Do you think that the governments can? can be doing to improve that situation, and is there a role for a company like Sandoz? So the biosimilar uptake variation, I think, for the last two or three years has been quite significant, but I think it's also a, has been a time of learning for a lot of trusts. Um, we have never had a situation, as we're going to be coming up with soon, where several biosimilar players have come into the market at the same time for one single product. It's always been a bit staggered. Mm -hmm. So if you look at um, some of the products that have come in the last year, for example, trusts and hospitals, clinicians even, have chosen to wait because they wanted to have that choice of, well, I want to see what the other biosimilar is before I commit to one, the first biosimilar, mm -hmm. which is understandable on some level. So that's partly what's driven the variation as well. However, most places have gone through a biosimilar transition at this point in time. And so when it comes to the next biosimilar that's coming um, at, you know, towards the tail end of this year, then everybody has learned from that initial experience and they know what they need to adjust and change within their own trust and their own processes to achieve the, the best uptake possible. So I do think we will see faster uptake the, the later we go, but I, it also is dependent on how quickly patients accept, because you do need patient consent to be able to change over from an, uh, their original, their reference medicine to the biosimilar medicine, how quickly you know, services like home care can adapt and make that switch for them, um, for a hospital, if they want to move, I don't know, 500 patients, it's not easy to make that change, but how quickly can a home care company deliver that change? These are all things that are going to come into play. Now, 
from a policy standpoint, I think NHS is doing everything they can to push it towards the uptake that they've seen over the last two years. And like I said, it's in the 70 to 80% range. So how quickly can they get it there is a, is a big, it's on the radar screen for them significantly because for them, they want to maximize that one-time savings for, as you said, for the one product that's basically the biggest spend in the NHS. You know, they they want to get the most out of it. Now, the way they're approaching it is because it's an unusual situation of a lot of companies coming at the same time, they are doing potentially doing something different with their procurement setup, with their tender setup. So we're waiting to see what exactly that's going to look like. Um, but for currently existing biosimilars, there's a certain process. There's tranche A, tranche B, different regions get different timings and so on. For this next product coming, it's going to be basically starting from scratch and a new process, whatever that is, for a certain period of time, and then we'll see. Now, that's what I've been hearing. Mm-hmm. Don't haven't seen the details yet. My understanding is that it's getting it's gotten sent quite senior up the chain to get the endorsement for how to move forward with it and give direction to the um, to the hospitals and to the trust. The great thing is that there's actually been a a lot of work by the RMOS lately, especially in the last couple of weeks where they've provided very clear, almost directive guidance to hospitals saying, these are the steps you need to be looking at to be prepared for this next biosimilar that's coming. So make sure you have all your ducks in a row, and they've literally listed out things that they need to be considering to be ready to go when the day comes when you have those biosimilar choices. One of the ways that industry can help, obviously, in this situation is um, doing work like Sandoz has done with the Cancer Vanguard. The Cancer Vanguard was the result of a joint working project with uh, with three different um, cancer institutes um, to look at how we can improve biosimilar uptake. What are the things that a hospital needs to look at for adoption of biosimilar? It's literally going through it almost like a checklist, saying, "Do your clinicians understand biosimilars? Do have you looked at this? Have you looked at this?" And really giving a framework for evaluating which biosimilar a hospital should be choosing. Now, that's the first type of work of its kind that was done and has been used as an example of how industry can work with NHS to really improve the uptake of biosimilars, but it's also a great tool because fundamentally, regardless of what biosimilar it is with some small variations, you should be able to use that checklist regardless of what biosimilar you're talking about. So it's it's one of the ways where industry can support the NHS in getting to their ultimate goal of um, achieving fast, rapid, and high biosimilar uptake. I'm sure more examples like that will come forward, but you know, for an organization like Sandoz, that partnership with the NHS is really important because we're all in it together. We're all trying to achieve the same thing, um, in a sense. And um, I think if we have tools that we feel are useful for the market, we'll make them available to the market. Mm-hmm. And we, we've touched a little bit on um, the role, particularly with, with um, the uh, adalimumab um, biosimilars that will be coming um, uh, becoming available uh, certainly in the UK and, and Europe towards the end of this year. But, but the role of uh, the NHS commercial unit uh, as, as a company, have you had many dealings to date? This is quite a new um, a, a, a new area part of uh, an initiative for the NHS. Have you had many many dealings with it to date? So not. 
outright in the sense of have I sat down with those specific individuals? No, but they're a part of a lot of the discussions we have. So we have, um, so as part of the BB, as chair of the BBA, we engage with different stakeholders. So we've been talking to people on the home, in the National Home Care Association. We've been talking to people with the NHS um, Commercial Medicines Unit, et cetera. But we're also part of, um, I'm also, I also sit on the National Biosimilar Medicine Program Board, which, um, has people from the NHS involved in that, such as Keith Ridge and uh, and so on. Now, all of that is leads into providing input into what the commercial medicines unit and the commercial arm really is trying to do for Adalimumab. So my objective is to basically feed in as much information as possible on our past experience and what we've seen in the marketplace to make sure that whatever setup they choose to implement is is going to work for everybody who's a player in here for to make sure we get the best uptake possible. So they we interact with them, we offer input where we can, and um, waiting to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And it certainly feels uh, with a lot of the biosimilars that there's a, a cumulative process happening, both in terms of um, uh, regulators' knowledge and um, their position of, of comfort with, with these um, types of medicines, but also prescribers as well. You, you mentioned you mentioned that um, uh, with some uh, biosimilars coming through, there's been a certain sense of um, or wait, wait and see to have more more um, evidence come through on those. Thank you. Biosimilars coming through. I did, it, feels like there's going to be quite a tipping point for patients, prescribers and payers once that process is worked out. Mm-hmm. How, what do you think will be the ramifications of, of, of that on those, those fronts? So I think with adalimumab there's some similarity with Etanercept just because it is a device administered product. So hospitals and trusts who have gone through the switch process for Etanercept will probably feel a bit more comfortable with adalimumab. Um, having said that, though, Adelimab is also entering new therapeutic spaces that haven't had to have devices um, in terms of biosimilar switches and so on happening. So gastroenterology, for example, has biosimilar experience, but not with a device biosimilar or a biosimilar that has a device associated with it, for example. So we'll have to wait to see how that changes. And then with dermatologists, we haven't seen the uptake that we have with dermatologists, for example, with biosimilars to date. So to your point, yes, there's learnings, and yes, we expect, 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 expect um, strong biosimilar uptake for adalimumab as well. There's still some open questions on what is going to be the acceptance and how quick are some of these other groups that don't necessarily have that initial experience and how that's going to look over the next you know, 6 to 12 months or so. There might still be some, maybe not clinically-led um, challenges, but just trying to get them on board with the process and because they're not used to it, right? This will be the first time some of these people are going through this type of process. So that could take some time. So even though they've, we've technically had experience with a Tannercept, I wouldn't translate it to, well, you've had experience, you've done this before, so this should be a piece of cake because I think it's going to vary by clinician specialty as well um, and getting them on board. And this is where the education piece still comes into play where it's not quite a done deal yet, with clinician education, um, at least we don't feel it is, because you do have other groups that you need to get on board. And some are, you know, some are going to be a bit more challenging just because they haven't had to deal with biosimilars before, and trying to get them bought into the concept is still going to be 
something we're starting with, not continuing with. Um, now, having said all of that, I think with any biosimilar, I think you have to look at them individually. I would love to say that once you've got one biosimilar sorted, then you've got every other biosimilar sorted. It's honestly going to vary. It's not just about whether it has a device or whether it's IV administered. There's other pieces of it. We have a biosimilar, um, or we, the market has a biosimilar that's coming to market right now, which is both subcutaneously administered and IV administered. It's indicated, the reference medicine is indicated for both. However, the biosimilar is only indicated for IV. So how do you manage that? So I think you have to look at each individual biosimilar separately to say, okay, well, what is specific about this that's different from the other ones, and how do we address those differences? We know how the basic stuff should work, but every single one of them is going to have its own unique challenges. You know, at some point in the future, we might have a biosimilar for a medicine that's not NICE approved or NICE endorsed. What do we do with that? And that's, things like that are things that will come up in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll work through them. You know, everybody is incentivized, quote-unquote, to make biosimilars work for the market, so we will find a way through those, too. It's just keeping an eye out for what those differences are ahead of time so you can address them before it's too late to take advantage of that cost-effective biosimilar. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that brings us nicely to the end of this episode of the podcast. But, Kavya uh, Gokul, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Pharma Forum Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Sandoz UK's Kavya Gopal on the biosimilar landscape. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link to the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The podcast is also available on iTunes, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins. And follow us on Twitter, where we are at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.